Hello and welcome to the EMG Gold podcast. I'm your host for today, Sen Boyassi, Head of Content Marketing here at EMG Health. And today I am joined by Arun Matani, former Vice President of Channel Strategy and Digital Content at Teva Pharmaceuticals. Thank you for joining us today, Arun. How are you doing? Hi, I'm doing really well. Good to speak to you. Absolutely. Great to have you on board, finally. Um, so, so for those of you who don't know Aaron, he is a digital marketing and communications aficionado who has over 25 years experience in transforming global companies across Europe and Asia. He began his career in the media industry, leading Bloomberg's UK channel through the 2008 financial crash. He then relocated to Hong Kong and became the global head of production for Reuters, then becoming chief content officer at Edelman APAC. His interest in life sciences began at Edelman after working with pharma giant Janssen as a client, and this then led him to accept a job at Teva Pharmaceuticals in 2016, where he worked for over three years as their vice president of channel strategy and digital content. And now he works as a strategic advisor for UK biotechs and is weathering the COVID-19 pandemic from his home in the English countryside, which is just dreamy. So really, really interesting background. And thank you again for taking the time to join us today. Um, I'd really love to start off with a with a very kind of simple for me question, but often a bit of a interesting one for guests to answer. But but you have held a kind of lifelong passion for digital marketing communications, which is quite quite clear from your background. But but what first sparked your interest in this area? It's great to be here and thank you for the question. Look, um, I've always felt that digital and communications almost occupy two sides of my personality or character. Mm. Um, I remember when I was a, a child, I used to love technology and, and, and the new things that happened. I, I remember badgering my father for, for months for the latest computer which he eventually succumbed to and, and bought me for huge expense it was a commodore 64 for people who remember such things and i loved it i used to you know spend hours and days programming uh, on on it to try and you know invent small little software programs i used to also love electronics and i used to you know, collect resistors and diodes and capacitors and try and make things mostly unsuccessfully I think if you go to my parents' house, there's probably still a, a synthesizer, a half-made synthesizer, which was my big project that probably will never play a note. So I loved technology and the new, and, and that thing led me to digital. But I always balanced it out with, with my passion for words. I, I always adored words in books and in movies, and I always loved the power they had. And, you know, I grew up in an era of, politicians like Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan and then Bill Clinton and Tony Blair, who were so powerful with their words. And, and that really struck home with me. And I think that's where I got my sense of, you know, communication and, and how important words could be uh, for, for, for really influencing people. And of course, I don't know about you, Sen, but I've been glued to the radio or glued to the television over the last couple of weeks uh, really listening to the US elections and once again struck yeah. by the power of communication from Joe Biden, from Kamala Harris and Donald Trump as well. And again, I think that, you know, it just shows how important words are, 
how much impact and meaning they can have. So that's how I think I've arrived at this position, which is this balance of digital and communications and marketing. I'm thrilled to say that, you know, I can actually do a job where all these three things kind of uh, coalesce and integrate. And, uh, you know, it really does reflect both my sides of that character or personality from when I was little. Beautifully articulated and absolutely, I think, the example that you just used most recently where a lot of uh, people across the world have been glued to their TVs and radios and and, and phones to really listen to those speeches, um, those various types of communication. It, it really it really does just prove how important your choice of words and um, the way in which those are delivered as well. Tone, I think, um, can often be underestimated. Um you then kind of began your career in the media industry. Um, so I'm really, really interested to find out because this is really fascinating. What was it like leading a TV channel during a financial crash? And and have you applied any of your learnings to your work in the pharmaceutical industry thereof? That's a, a great question. I think, you know, in response to your question, what was it like? I think it was terrifying. Mm. Uh, it was terrifying for so many people, you know, who were, you know, watching these banks collapse and these markets plunge. And I remember watching television and seeing queues of people outside institutions trying to get their money out. It was unprecedented to use that very well-worn word now, but it really was. And it was terrifying and exhilarating being in that kind of production hot seat as the eyes of the world turned to what we were doing at Bloomberg and to make sense of, 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 of the chaos. Um, one thing I think I really remember and took from it was the response we had at Bloomberg. So I think we all made a decision fairly early on that this period of, 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 of chaos and turbulence was a, 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 a time when we could really change things at the channel and really shape things and, and redo things. So we literally tore up the playbook in terms of the programming, the people, and what we did, and and out of that came a totally different operation and approach, uh, which ended up being really successful. So one of the things that I really remember from that period was, you know, really having the the, the, the courage to to take that period of chaos and turn it around into something that produced something that was positive and progressive. And obviously, that speaks to now, not just for pharma, but for all yeah. you know institutions and companies that ability to, to take that period of, of turbulence and really reformat what you do and revamp what you do and move forward and, and be that catalyst for change. That was one thing that I really took from that period. Um, I think the other thing was more broad and general um, of, of, of being a journalist. And, and mm. you know, I was a TV producer by trade and you're, you're literally putting a, a show on air and you live or die by your ratings or by the people hmm. that you have, the audience. And so I became incredibly, as all journalists are, audience-centric. That's what really matters. And everything else kind of fell away. So you ended up having this very focused mindset on what was valuable and relevant for your target audience. And I think I've carried that into my whole marketing communications career so I always feel that, you know, I'm the one who puts my hand up and says, you know, what's it like to walk in the shoes of the audience? You know, what's really relevant and value, valuable for them? 
And of course, you know, the brand and the company are front and center, that's the business. But I always feel that unless you can really engage the target audience in a meaningful way, you know, you're never going to cut through to them and deliver the key messages you want to deliver. So I've always, I think, you know, taken that that audience-centric mindset into my career as I go along. So they're the two things I took from my my Bloomberg career. I think it's a mixture of, you know, the kind of impetus to drive change from a period of, of chaos and then that audience-centric mindset. I think that's that's really fascinating. And often I, I, I am particularly fascinated by individuals who come to work within life sciences in the pharmaceutical industry from non-kind of traditionally healthcare related backgrounds um, because often the things that you learn from other industries and from different experiences outside of healthcare really can be applied to this industry too mm-hmm. um, but it just allows you to think outside the box and a little bit differently which we, it's a trend that we're seeing farm companies hiring more people out of their industry uh, to come in and to be able to do that and I think you are a perfect example of someone who has done that successfully and then um, while working at Tiva you launched a very highly uh, successful patient initiative called Life Effects. What were the origins of this project and, and how did you manage to achieve high engagement with a relatively low financial burden? So I, I think it comes back again to that audience-centric mindset that we just talked about. So at, at Teva, we were, um, you know, one of the things we were doing was we were launching a corporate brand um a huge initiative designed to to really engage all our stakeholders and at the heart of the corporate brand was this sense of patient centricity of improving people's lives and i think we in the in the global marketing team all agreed that it wasn't enough just to talk about improving people's lives we had to demonstrate it and live it and do it and life effects was really part of that um you know development of a reason to believe. So what we we did was we decided to do something valuable for our core audience, which was this audience of people living with chronic conditions. And we wanted to make something that would be supportive for them in all these different countries around the world. So to find out what would be really helpful to them, we did some research, we did focus groups around the world in New York and, and elsewhere, And we came out with two really clear insights from that research. The first one was that, you know, these people were long-term sufferers with chronic conditions of asthma and migraine and MS and so on and so on. And, you know, the, the condition itself, of course, was on their minds and a huge feature of their lives, the biology of the condition. But they told us almost to a man or woman, that living with the condition was their main challenge. So how did they carry on with their job with the condition? How did they have a social life? How did they go dating or uh, you know go on holiday when they were suffering with this condition? And out of that was born the sense of life effects. So how this condition affects your life and how we could help people cope with their life given their condition. And the second insight was was also really clear from them. They said to us, of course, they went to their HCPs for um, you know medical direction, and they talked to their friends and family. But overwhelmingly, they also turned to people like them, other sufferers from chronic conditions, 
and they really liked hearing from them because they'd been there already. They were in a similar boat to, to these the, the, these patients. And so we built life effects on these twin pillars of, of really trying to support people in their wider life, but also making patients the centre of the programme. They were the people who um, uh, crafted the stories, who came up with the concepts, um, who starred in the content and were really strategic guide, you know, guides for the whole program. And those two aspects, I think, ensured that the content we produced was incredibly valuable and relevant to this in, important target audience. And then you go on and you say, look, if you have this great, relevant, valuable content, you have really high engagement. And if you have high engagement, you know, that leads to really good outcomes in terms of costs on media because of the way that you know social media works and, and, and the paid platforms work. But more than that, I think you end up with this incredibly valuable audience who have this meaningful relationship with the platform and with the brand and the company behind it. So they were super keen to share the content and tell all their friends about life effects. But they were also really keen to talk about Teva and, and, and the brand overall and the good things. They came to events with us. They spoke to our sales team. And I just think it was amazing to have this group of really passionate, uh, quite important patients standing up and speaking for the company and life effects. And that was all down to the fact that we really managed to tap into something that they really needed in terms of those unmet needs. Yeah, love that. Thanks for summarizing that. Really, really inspiring to a certain extent in terms of what it is that you were able to achieve there. Um, just brilliant. And I kind of want to talk about a little bit about the situation that we find ourselves in now within the industry, or more so since pretty much the beginning of this year. So COVID-19 has, um, it's not a secret, it's really accelerated the adoption of digital across all areas of the industry, and most notably in areas of, of commercial in particular. What solutions do you think are companies using, or do you know of that, that companies are using, and, and what could be improved about their approach? So, so look, I think that it's, you know, I think it's an absolute sea change in the way that people are operating. I don't think that things will go back to normal after this, although some people do. Um, I, you know, I, I think pharma marketing has, has stayed largely the same for a long time. And for good reason, it's been incredibly successful, you know, and it's built on uh, the twin pillars of, of reps, and, and events and those two working together have been, you know, brilliant for, mm. for, for the industry. I think what um, the, the pandemic has done is forced pharma to almost move on and forced pharma to look at, you know, alternative digital options. And, and you know, I think it's really interesting how they've done this. I think there's been a progression in their minds about how they've done this and, and how they've operated. I think at the start, it was very much about... Um, you know, using digital to almost recreate offline um, relationships or offline interactions. So I saw quite a few, you know, digital events that were very similar to offline events. But I think as we've gone through this process, we've seen that um, people have started to think digital first. And that's the big mindset shift I think we need to make. You know, what does a digital first experience look like and feel like for our customers and so that really changes what you do 
So instead of trying to recreate an offline experience, you try and think about from scratch about what's best for your customer. So I think that the, the, the things we've seen come in heavily um, are, are things where we've used that unique digital nature to, to really offer value for our customers. And, and it's things like um, personalization and interactivity. So think of those online events we see now where it's, it's, it's not um, a series of presentations, it's much more of a series of conversations where the audience is fully engaged with you know, comments and polls and, and so on and so on, and quizzes. And, and then if you think about things like personalization, how can you personalize someone's event experience so that it really matches what they want? So maybe they have, you know, they're able to do um, uh, small snapshots of bits they find really relevant and get it tailored to them as opposed to just having to sit through whole uh, sessions when they could be doing so much more. So I think that that's one of the things we've seen, that digital first approach and really bringing those concepts of interactivity and personalization to the fore. I think there's a bigger theme as well, which I think we're starting to see, which is that we're starting to put the customer at the center of what we're doing. And not to say the customer wasn't um, you know, the key player before, but I think in a kind of experience framework, we're putting the, the customer at the center. I think before it was very much siloed. It was the, the rep visit and it was the event and it was this and it was that. I think we're now starting to say, what's the best joint of experience that our customers can have of, of, of our company and what we're doing? And then starting to define that experience as it as it should be, which is seamless and joined up. So I think you know again, it's a very highly used word, but I think the the omni-channel uh, approach I think is starting to come to the fore. And pharma, I think for the first time, is really starting to you know look at what those other industries are doing, such as consumer marketing, that have looked at that omni-channel experience for a long time. Um, I, I, the other thing I think that's clear to say from my point of view is that I think it almost augments the role of the rep. You know, people have written lots of pieces about the rep going away and is this the end? I think it's the opposite. I think I see the rep in a much more powerful position now, where whereas she or he has control of all these different touch points and channels, and they're all connected, and they're able, like a conductor, to sequence and shape a seamless really valuable experience for the customer. So I think that the the rep, you know, should grab these opportunities, grab these new channels, grab this digital approach and build it into that seamless experience and put uh, you know almost orchestrate that that uh, that that new reality for their clients, which I think will pay off hugely. So that's my kind of final thought on that. You know, the the rep is here to stay in a bigger way than ever before. I love your optimism on that uh, because I've not quite heard it quite like that when it comes to reps in particular. Um, and I do agree with you. I, I'm quite optimistic about us um, not going back to the way that things were before and genuinely taking on all of these learnings um, that we have over the last few months. But I, I wanted to talk to you about clinical trials as well, because that's another space that has seen great digital transformation. What are the most promising applications of digital in this area that you've seen? And what kind of impact could these then have on patient outcomes? I think clinical trials, it, it's been 
a pure example of, of out of a terrible situation, great things can happen. So once again, progress from chaos. I mean, clinical trials have been battered. Um, I'm not sure the numbers, but there are so many trials that have been uh, cancelled or, or, or dialed down or dialed back, um, you know, in, in, in recent months, at, you know, for the detriment of, of patients everywhere. So this is a really serious thing, but it has forced sponsors and CROs to think differently about how they do these trials. And of course, you've seen the rise of the virtualized clinical trial. So in practical terms, you can think of, you know, data gathering. There's definitely been a rise of, of things like e-diaries, uh, apps and wearables to gather data. Um, if you think about things like consultant uh, consultants, uh, there's been a rise in telehealth for clinical trials where, you know, patients are increasingly able to give their their, 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 their answers over video, whereas they would have before had to go to the site. And, and I think the third place is, is recruitment, whereas uh, I think that, you know, with less patients going to sites and less patients in hospitals for things outside of COVID, I think sponsors have been forced to look at uh, non-traditional ways of recruitment, such as social media. So all these three things, I think, have come to the fore and made a huge difference. I think that, you know, you also have to applaud the role of the regulators, you know, the FDA yeah. and so on and so on, for making the changes to allow these things to happen. I think there's much more uh, progress on, on changing protocols than ever has been before. You, you've seen decentralised trials and virtualised trials um, talked about in political circles at a level that we've never seen before, which shows the, the emphasis on this. Uh, which I, I think is fantastic. I think in terms of the way it's going to play out going forward, um, it, it, it's really interesting. I, I, I think one of the things that I'm seeing is I don't think that the future is going to be uh, you know, traditional trials or, or fully virtualized trials. I think it's got to be a hybrid approach. Mm. It's got to be a way that both things work together. And I'll give you an example. Uh, one of the things that... that, 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 that that firms turn to, sponsors turn to, uh, if patients don't want to go to sites, is e-diaries. So they can record their uh, data on a, a regular basis by filling in an e-diary on a, an app that they're given. So they don't have to go to the site. However, if you're an older person, um, or, or maybe just not that technologically um, enabled, you know, filling in an e-diary is actually really tough and you don't want to do it. So what you see is, you know, phone support for these patients who are filling e-diaries. E so once again, it's not really just let's go fully virtual or let's just stick with what we have. It's this hybrid approach. And again, I think what's coming out of this is um, we have more options, which is brilliant. And we're putting the patient at the heart of these options. So instead of saying you will do this or you will do this and this is how we're going to work, we're now thinking of what's base best for this particular patient. How can we support them best? How can we use all these different methods and technologies to give them the best trial experience? And if we do that, the payoff is, is considerable. The drop-off of patients in trials is, is significant, which is very, very expensive. But also, if you manage to, to use some of these new techniques in a way that's fully supported for the patients, your data will be improved. 
so you'll get better results in terms of safety and efficacy leading to better patient outcomes which is of course what we all want absolutely and 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 i guess this question kind of touches on various things that we've talked about so far but but as we go through this period of adopting all of these various different solutions and doing it quickly uh, or quicker than we have previously it's also very important to think with a clear strategy so what can pharma learn from other industries um, in terms of their approach to digital transformation as it launches into this revolution? So I think that's a great question. And I think that, you know, because pharma is, is, is uh, you know, behind other industries in some ways in this, we can almost do it better than other industries. So we can avoid making some of the mistakes. And, and in digital transformation, uh, you know, the, the, the run rate's not great most transformations fail and and for me they fail not because of the the brilliance of the technology or or the technical team but they fail because we haven't done the really important piece which is all about people so for me a digital transformation is a people transformation and if you don't have the people on board in the right way you're never going to get the technology used in the right way and the digital techniques used in the right way, and it will fail. So what does this people transformation look like? For me, it's always been two really clear things. First of all, it's leadership. It's great that the CDO or the CIO is is on board with the transformation and they're driving it. But without the rest of the leadership team being on board, the transformation will fail because it'll never tear down the company unless the other leaders speak up for it and, and, and push it forward. So a transformation for me has to be uh, really uh, taken on as a job by the entire C-suite or leadership team from the CEO downwards. And where that has happened, it's been brilliantly successful. Where it hasn't happened, it's failed. And, you know, I think engaging the leadership team is, is, is something that obviously most people do at the start. But I really see a period of continuous engagement of the leadership team around digital. They have to be part of the process. They have to be on the steering committees. They have to own what's going on. And if that happens, there's a much greater chance of success. So that's one side, the leadership team. The other side is the rest of the company. And that really speaks to culture. Mm -hmm. To make a digital transformation work, you need a culture to support that transformation. And you need a digital thinking culture. And yes, you can go an awfully long way in communication. You can get the leadership team to communicate about the transformation. You can update the company on a regular basis. But culture is so much more than that. And I think you have to clearly think in terms of the structure of your organization. You have to think about the organizational design of your, of your organization. And think about what does it really look like? for digital transformation? How can it really change to make this work? And the other thing is it has to be, digital has to be part of everyone's job and it has to be written into their job. And this speaks to a partnership with HR, human resources, to really build digital transformation into people's performance plans, into their the way they work and even into the way they're enumerated so that people really take it on board. So just to sum up, I see a digital transformation as a people transformation. Ongoing engagement with leaders is absolutely critical, but also that key culture change aspect and really pulling the right leaders to achieve that. 
Love that. So it's kind of like full buy-in from the leaders within the business, but then also kind of making sure that everyone else absolutely lives and breathes that digital transformation. Um, so yeah, very well articulated there again. Thank you. And my final question for you. So you have spent time living in Hong Kong, um, especially while working for Reuters and Edelman, I believe it was. So, so what can you only experience about the country from living there rather than visiting as a tourist? That's a great question. I spent eight years in, in Hong Kong, uh, which was you know a good chunk of my life. And I, I spent a lot of time working in China as well. Um, and you know, that, that experience will always stay with me. And you're right, it, it's a fantastic city to visit. As a tourist, it, it, it's, you know, I, I would urge anyone to do it. But it's a very different experience living there and particularly working there. And I'll give you some examples. I had a local team in a large part. So they were a team of Hong Kongers. And you really get to know a country when you have to manage a team of local people. So there's lots of cultural, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, cultural differences between, you know, the way we work in the UK and the way a team might live and work in Hong Kong. So for instance, most people or lots of people I found in my team used to go home really late. And at the start, I was really alarmed by this. I was thinking, you know, they're, 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 they're obviously, you know, being overworked, but they weren't. Basically, they, most Hong Kongers, because of the property situation, live in really small apartments with multiple generations of their family. Yeah. So going home means going home to a tiny apartment that's full of people and no privacy. So they much prefer to stay at, at work and get on with their work with their colleagues and teams in that setting. And that's just an example of you know those cultural differences you don't really experience uh, from just visiting a country. Similarly, in, in China, I was amazed when I walked into a big office building in the middle of the day and all the lights were out and everyone was asleep on their desks. And that's common in China, that everyone has a nap at, at lunchtime for 45 minutes. But again, it's that really interesting uh, insight you get from actually working there as opposed to, to just uh, visiting there on, on, on holiday. And then I think the other thing was I was in a role where I was um, providing services to some of our biggest clients for Edelman. And lots of these clients were, were Chinese and uh, or, or from Hong Kong or from Korea or, or any of those other places across Asia. And there's a big difference between meeting people in a restaurant or a, uh, you know, a cafe and having you know, drinks with them to actually sitting there across the office table and trying to sell them a service mm. and in exchange for their hard-earned Hong Kong dollars or, 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 or yuan. And that gives you a real sense of how people operate. They're hard-nosed businessmen. They love a good deal. And it taught me an awful lot about negotiation. But I think the, the, the final point I'd make is, is you do get a different sense over the, the years of being there. Of, of the way the culture works and it really is quite different it's it's the people were, were 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 fabulous they were kind they were gentle they were friendly and they had this community spirit that i loved and maybe you don't get in all parts of the west there was a sense of collective responsibility mm. that i think you don't necessarily get in in in, in all parts of, of western europe or america and that was uh, something that i think's really stayed with me about china and, and I'll always look 
back incredibly favorably on Hong Kong and China uh, and my experience there. Wonderful. A lot of that I actually was not aware of. So I've learned a lot, um, but it sounds like a wonderful place. And the fact that you were there for eight years alone says quite a lot about how you felt about being there, I guess. So brilliant. Well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today. I, I could ask you so much more, but this is all that we can fit in for today. Thank you again so much for sharing all of your insights and joining us today. I really, really appreciate it. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to speak to you and uh, I really enjoyed the conversation and, and sharing a little bit about my background. So thank you for the opportunity. Brilliant. And to all of our listeners, thank you again for tuning in this week and listening. Please do tune in again next week to hear from another great guest on the EMG Gold podcast. Thank you and take care.